And that's what my notes say on that topic. Do you have any questions? Yes. Is the traveling mic? Thank you. I noticed in your um, presentation of the philosophers that there weren't any women. Is that mm-hmm. because there weren't any? Or there were women, but there were no women philosophers. No women mm-hmm. philosophers. As far as we know. <laughs> um, the last reference, you don't have many references to nuns in, in later Indian um, Buddhism. And this, this is one of the interesting things, is the Mahayana comes along and they, they advertise themselves as being really open and more supportive of women. But you find that there are fewer and fewer and fewer nuns during that time. Um, the last inscription for any kind of donation to a nunnery, I think, is about the 10th century. And Buddhism lived on for another two centuries in India. Um, and, in, and if you look in the secular literature, when they talk about Buddhist nuns, around about the 8th century, um, you find talk of Buddhist nuns participating in Tantra. Um, basically what would you have is they would have lay women who were their disciples, who would go out to the, you know, the various places where the Tantric rituals were being done. And then after they had developed all their tantric power, then they would come and they would ordain as nuns. But what, what's interesting is that the, the sort of the, the stereotypical role of a Buddhist nun in a Sanskrit play is as a matchmaker. You know, there's, there, there's the prince who's fallen in love with this, this beautiful princess of another kingdom, but he can't meet her, while the nun is the one who's going to do all the arranging. Or if there's this one princess who doesn't have a prince falling in love with her, she says, I'll let me take care of that. And then she'll takes care of that. And it's, it's not, it's, it's the, you know, the, from the point of the view, the view of the Vinaya, nuns are not supposed to do this. This is one of the things that you're actually forbidden to do. But in, in the plays, it's, it's considered as a positive thing. The nuns are portrayed as very compassionate people, very wise. But wise, compassionate matchmakers, that's not really, I think, what the Buddha had in mind for his nuns. <laughs> but this is pretty much all you know about nuns in later Indian Buddhism. As opposed to in the earlier centuries, you know, right around the time of King Ashoka and right after, you not only have you know, donations being given to nunneries, but you also have nuns sponsoring large donations. Which means either that they were born in wealthy families, and carried some of their family wealth with them, or they had a huge, huge number of followers that they could draw on to get the money to, say, build a stupa or something. So there's kind of a decline over the period of time, just as there's a decline in the status of women as a whole in India during those centuries. Next question, Julia. Mm-hmm. I was wondering if you could sum up the, the difference between Hinayana, the practice when you're a Buddhist monk, like, I want to become an arhat or I just want to get out of mm-hmm. here, mm-hmm. versus Mahayana, like, I want to wait and help other people or mm-hmm. I want to wait and become a Buddha. Mm-hmm. Um, I was wondering if you could just sum up between those two. Oh. Um, in some ways, there's not any difference at all. When you've got to work on the perfections, 
either way. Um, in, in terms of the way the Vinaya is going to be observed in those different contexts, um, the Mahayana has long had a from very early Mahayana teachings, the idea was was that okay, Vinaya really depends on the situation, just as virtue of the precepts depend on this. There's a much more situational approach to the precepts. That there are going to be times when the compassionate thing is to is to break the precept. Um, now you you'll find specific Mahayana sects which will say no, we're going to stick by the precepts anyhow. In in say in Japan, the Shingon sect was very close to Vinaya. And they're Mahayana. Um, in Tibet, it's the Gelugs struck closer to the Vinaya. But one of the one of the major differences you see between Mahayana texts and, and sort of the earlier texts is this attitude towards the precepts. So that's one of the, one of the differences you'll find. Now, if you actually look at somebody's practice, you may get an individual Mahayana monk who said, "I'm going to stick with the precepts. I need I need to, to work on this." But, um, You know, I've never really lived in a Mahayana monastery, so I can't I can't describe it otherwise. But I, I certainly know that in in the forest tradition, the emphasis is on look, you've got this one lifetime. You don't know how many you know what you're going to be next time around unless you work hard, you know? and you can't depend on a bodhisattva vow to see you through. So there's a much more sense of urgency. Okay. Yes. Bhante, out of those two uh, ways of becoming a becoming an, an arahant, or whether to wait until become to become a bodhisattva, out of those two options, what has the Buddha recommended? What way has he recommended? They say, look, when the path is open, take it. <laughs> you have a chance to be an arahant. Don't throw it away. You know, it's all, all the teachings you have in the Pali Canon point to being, you know, taking the path of the Arahant. Okay. Now, someone will say that the Pali Canon doesn't contain all the teachings of the Buddha, but My concern is a lot of people become bodhisattva, you know, take the bodhisattva vow without really thinking about what they're doing, one. And then two, it becomes an excuse not for going, you know, give all your energy to the path. That's the danger. The danger of the arahant path is to say, to hell with everybody, I'm just going to do my own thing. Um, I think the second one is a lesser danger. Because you, your own thing as a you know, person striving for arahantship is you have to practice generosity. You have to practice the precepts. These things that other people are going to benefit from anyhow. There's no such thing in, in Buddhism, in any form of Buddhism, that you're going to get out of here without helping other people. <laughs> One way or another.
I'll just make a few concluding remarks. I'm kind of burned out, okay? <laughs> there was some plan to actually go over the readings. Remember those? Oh. <laughs> I'll give, let me give you a few. After I do my concluding remarks, I'll give you a few recommendations on how to go over the readings on your own at home, and then we'll, then we'll split. Okay. <clears throat> okay, to conclude, I'd like to reflect a little bit on that image of the magic show we talked about earlier. Remember in the Pali Canon, there are two kinds of em- emptiness. Emptiness as a meditative dwelling and emptiness as an attribute of objects. As an attribute of objects, the magic show is brought in as an analogy. You see that the objects of clinging are insubstantial, but clinging causes real suffering. Okay? It's not that the suffering is imaginary too. Okay? You let go of the idea of there being something behind the show and instead you focus on the real problem, which is how suffering comes about. What are you doing to cause the suffering around these insubstantial objects? You look at the process of the rising and passing of suffering on its own terms, learn how to stop the clinging and craving through your knowledge, and you gain release. And that puts an end to the show, period. In the the moments of awakening, there is an experience of the deathless. At the point of the experience of the deathless, there is no experience of any of the six senses. But it's not a blacking out. There is an awareness. But it's not based on any kind of fabrication at all. So when we say that there's an ending of the show, that doesn't mean everything shuts down and there's a total blanking out. There's still a kind of awareness, but it's an awareness with no suffering. Nagarjuna takes a similar use of the magic show. In other words, for him, it's seeing that things have are, are dependently co-arise and that there's nothing that you cannot build a view around them. When you see that the views are built around these things are based on faulty assumptions, you begin to see the views themselves as a magic show. So you drop the assumptions about existence or non-existence, and you look just at the emptiness of things in and of themselves. By doing that, you drop all your attachment to views, and as he would say, you come to the state of total non-reliance on views, which is the ultimate emptiness. And then, then again, the magic show ends. In the Mahayana, they have a more positive view of the magic show. Remember the three stages of discernment? The first one is that you, tr- you try not to be deluded by the magic show. The second one is finally you see through the magic tricks, and then you come back so you continue performing good magic for other people. Magic that actually helps them. The problem with this particular one is that they say, okay, suffering itself is illusory, and when you see through the illusion, then you can still participate in the processes of conditionality, but without suffering, because you don't really dwell either in nirvana or in samsara, according to them. And as far as they're concerned, continuing with the magic show is worth it, worth the effort. That substantial good lies in performing the magic. So what this symbolizes is the different uses of emptiness. For the in the early teachings, emptiness is there is used as a way of focusing your attention on the question of suffering and stress. The same as with Nagarjuna, although Nagarjuna focuses on the issue of the suffering caused by holding an illogical, an illogical view, a view that makes no sense. In the Mahayana. 
<coughs> they don't want you to let go totally. They want, you, they want to be something left during the letting go. And so they come up with the state of non-dual consciousness as something you're trying to get to through the process of deconstruction, deconstructing your views or looking at experience simply as mental constructs. And they leave you with that non-dual awareness as the ultimate. And discouraging any attempt to analyze that as having any suffering or stress in it at all. And then from that state of non-dual awareness then you can continue on in, in, in samsara. But not totally totally in, let's put it that way. In it, but not of it. So that's the kind of change that developed in India over time with the teachings on emptiness. To look at the material that was in the, in the, in the readings, just give a little advice. That first passage is there to show what the Buddha's basic approach to discernment was. This is the question that is the basis for any search for discernment. The next passage shows how this whole question of looking at your actions in terms of their intention, the results while you're acting, and the results after you're acting, and then learning from your mistakes. How this starts out on a very day-to-day level, just what you're going to do. Is it, if you're going to are you going to yell at your little sister? Is it going to cause problems? Well, maybe you better not. You know? And then working up from that, you'll find if you compare the pattern in the teaching on Rahula with the pattern that's used in the teaching on meditation as a meditative, um, uh, excuse me, emptiness as a meditative dwelling, it's the same pattern. So in other words, Look to, to compare that second passage, which starts at the, just a, the, an inch or two down on page one, and compare that with the passage that starts at the bottom of page three. And you'll see that there are lots of parallels. As for the passage that starts on page two, the point I wanted to make here was that the Buddha talks about when people develop their meditation. Some people develop tranquility first without any discernment. Other people develop the discernment without much tranquility. And then there are the people who develop the two of them together. And basically the the pattern on how you develop the two of them together is the pattern that's used in the passage that begins on page three. Emptiness is a meditative dwelling. In other words, first you start out with the question of how am I going to settle my mind and then once I've got it settled, then the question is, how do I look at the process of fabrication? In this case, the Buddha advised, look at the process of fabrication in terms of the presence or absence of disturbance. The passage on the bottom of page five is there to point out that, yes, in the Pali Canon, they do recognize the existence of a non-dual state of consciousness. But they don't think it's a big deal. In fact, they encourage you to see it as not a big deal. So keep that in mind. The passages beginning on page six deal with emptiness as an attribute of objects. There's that question from Moggaranja. How do you view the world so as not to be seen by death's king? And the Buddha says, view the world as empty. 
Okay, the next passage describes what, he's, what does he mean by empty, looking at the world as empty. In other words, form, excuse me, that the six senses are empty of self or anything pertaining to a self. And the next passage applies a similar insight into the five khandhas with a lot of analogies and compares form to a glob of foam. Feeling is like bubbles rising on a river when it's falling in heavy rain. Perception is like a mirage. Fabrication is like a banana tree. In the sense of you, have you ever taken a banana tree apart? It's basically just peel. There's, no, there's nothing inside. You follow the peel and just kind of unfold it and it's just a big peel round around itself. There's no essence or hardwood in there. And then finally, number six is the magic show. Consciousness is like a magic show. In all these cases, you see that it's empty, void, and without any substance. In other words, to reduce your clinging to the object. The passage that begins on the bottom of page 7 describes how you take the experience of jhana and you take that apart and you look at it as empty as well. In other words, you go to all that trouble of putting it together and then you see what I say. This is still not as satisfactory as I thought it was. There's still stress in here. There's still not selfness in here. And then you gain a sense of dispassion towards that and that can lead you to the deathless. The passage that begins on page 8 shows the alternative. If you're not going to look at things in terms of self or not self, or in terms of existence or non-existence, what terms do you use? And First he points out that if you start thinking in terms of do I have a self, do I not have a self, what was I, what will I be, and you end up and you get all tangled in a tangle of views. Even if you got entangled in the view there is no self, it's a tangle. And again, it talks about not only the self, but also the existence of the self. Did I exist in the past? Will I exist in the future? Questions of being and not being again. And so instead, what questions does he have you attend to? He attends, has you attend to, on the bottom, on top of page 9, the Four Noble Truths. Stress, the origination, its cessation, and the path to its cessation. This is then seconded in the next passage, which is on page 9, beginning of page 9. When the Buddha says, when you look at the arising of things, the whole idea of the non, non-existence of things would not occur to you. If you look at their passing away, the, exist, the idea of it, their existence doesn't occur to you. And all that's left is seeing that when, when anything arises, it just, as he says, that mere stress when arising is arising. Stress when passing away is passing away. It's just the coming and going of stress. That's all that's left for you to look at. This is followed by the passage to Bahia, where he similarly says, well, in the scene there's only the scene, in the, in the herd only the herd, in the sensed and the cognized only the sensed and the cognized. Okay, when you see, when there's just that, when you haven't added anything on more to that experience, then there's no you there. And when you're, you're, not, you're not located there, because the whole thing, the whole point of one of the whole implications of holding on to something, that's how you locate your something, is how you. Def- 
you locate yourself and you define yourself by your clinging. Where there's no clinging, you're not located there. You're not defined. You're sort of out of the question, you're out of the equation. And the final one on page 10, I wanted to point out again that the, the early teachings did, did know of a teaching that everything is a oneness, and they said, nope, sorry, that's one extreme. Is everything a plurality? Now that's another extreme. And then the Buddha goes into dependent core rising. Um, and that one is when you don't construe anything around your perception, then the mind is such. Okay, you are such. And basically, the meaning there is that the mind doesn't change from anything, is not changed by anything. Whatever it was, it continues to be. No, it's a state of non. Um, what's the word? No impact. <laughs> And as for Nargarjuna, ha, ha, ha. Um, <laughs> first thing I want to point out, with, if you look through the Nargarjuna, the po- top of page 12, verse 8. The victorious ones have announced emptiness to be non-reliance on all views. Those who have an emptiness view are said to be incorrigible. Okay, that's the key to unlocking the whole the whole thing. Okay, emptiness is non-reliance on all views, but he doesn't want you to hold on to an emptiness view. He wants you to use emptiness, the teaching on emptiness. Yes, Mike's out. Sorry. The other place where emptiness is defined is on page fifteen. Under the examination of the Noble Truth, verse 18, we state that dependent core arising is emptiness. Independent on that convention is the middle way. In fact, if you're going to read Nagarjuna, that whole section 24 is probably the best to start with. The people say, hey, if, you're, if everything is empty, then you can't have any Four Noble Truths. If there are no Four Noble Truths, then there's no Buddha. There's no Buddha, there's no Dharma, there's no Sangam. You're refuting everything that the Buddha taught. And Nagarjuna is finally pinned down, so he has to explain himself. Because in the earlier chapters, Nagarjuna is kind of, he's having a lot of fun <laughs> attacking things, kind of hit and run on, from all sides. Okay, finally, he has to explain what he's doing, exactly why this has any relationship to Buddhist teachings at all. And it's in this particular chapter that things make most sense. And he shows how, okay, first he talks about the two levels of truth conventional and ultimate. And then he gives you the convention, conventional view of emptiness. We state that dependent core rising is emptiness. Depending on that, convention is the middle way. And from there, then he goes to show how the Four Noble Truths make sense only if you accept 
the teaching on emptiness on a conventional level. One other passage you should focus on before you start wading through Nagarjuna is on page 16. Under the examination of the 12 causal factors, their being clinging, becoming on the part of the clinger proceeds. If there were no clinging, or that person were to be without clinging, he or she would be released and there would be no becoming. Okay, that's, he's basically giving the explanation of why he's doing what he's doing. We're working on overcoming clinging, and by example, he shows it's and all of his examples of clinging are clinging to views. The whole purpose of this being, okay, once you overcome that clinging, then you're released and there's no further becoming. That's a Hinayana teaching. Okay? Trying to put an end to becoming is specifically a Hinayana, Hinayana goal. Yeah. Finally, one other thing you want to look at. Go back to page 12. Look on verse 7, the exhortation to Gajayana. That is the same as the passage. Excuse me. Page 9. The first full passage on page 9. Sometimes you hear the claim that Nagarjuna in the Garakas here is trying to explain the Brajna Bharamita Sutras. He doesn't mention them ever. Not a word. The only sutra that he cites by name is this one that was found in the Pali Canon. There on page 9. It's interesting though to make, if you compare what he says about that sutra though, in the exhortation to Kachayana, both exists and doesn't exist have been refuted by the Blessed One adept in existence and non-existence. Okay, notice that word refute. The Buddha is not refuting anything in that sutra. He's saying something about a, a state of mind he wants you to get into. Once you get into the state of mind where you're simply watching the arising and passing away of things, in terms of stress arising and passing away, the ideas of existence and don't, non-existence don't occur to you. He's trying to put you into that state. Nagarjuna here is saying, stating it more like the Buddha has refuted this on the logical level. Two different things. Close, but different. And I think seeing the difference there is, 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 is important for seeing you know, what Nagarjuna does as he takes the early teachings and focuses on the issue of logical consistency. One other thing I want to ha- tackle before we go. This is not quite on emptiness, but it is on Nagarjuna. Look on that last page, 16. Start with the examination of Nirvana here. Verse 17. Okay. It is not assumed that the Blessed One exists after death. It is not assumed that he doesn't exist, both or neither. Okay, this is straight from the early canons. It is not assumed that the Blessed One currently exists. It is not assumed that he doesn't exist, both or neither. 
This also comes from the canon. These two verses are supported by this passage in the Sanyuta, 2285-86. Now look at how he jumps to that next one. There exists nothing to distinguish nirvana from samsara. And that's a jump. Because <laughs> what he's talking about earlier is that, okay, when the Buddha is, goes into total nirvana, we can't say that he exists, doesn't exist, both or neither. While he's still experiencing, you know, we experience him as part of samsara, we can't say that he exists, doesn't exist, both or neither. But the words nirvana and samsara don't appear here. They're talking about the status of the Buddha while he's functioning and then after his total nirvana. You're lost? Yeah. Okay. Those first two verses are talking about the, the, the awakened one. Okay. You can't describe him after, his, after he passes away into total nirvana as existing or non-existing. You can't describe him in the present life as existing or non-existing. The reason for that is that you can't define him. You can, you can describe only the things you can define. Okay. Okay. But then, from the person currently existing or in nirvana, then they go to talk about nirvana and samsara themselves, as if there are two different... the state of nirvana and the state of samsara. Okay. Because, in the, in the sense that you can't describe them as ex existing, not both or neither. Okay, this one is, there's no, there's no basis in the Pali Canada for that next statement. For 19. For 19. Because there is a passage where the actual Buddha actually says nirvana exists. There is such a thing. Okay. And from, from 19, then Nagarjuna goes on to 20. The ontological status of nirvana is the ontological status of samsara. Between them, not even anything extremely subtle can be found. Now, most quotes of, of Nagarjuna will take that phrase, the ontological status, and they will remove it. So that nirvana is samsara. I just wanted to point that out. <laughs> So that's some guide posts on how to get your way through the readings. Any last questions? Yes. Microphone. Microphone. Um, you mentioned. Um, you mentioned situational ethics a little earlier, mm -hmm. and uh, a little later, the, this a story from, which I believe is from the Pali Canon came to me, where the Buddha um, actually decides, after some reflection in this situation, to kill uh, a pirate that that is attacking a, mm -hmm. that's attacking a boat, mm -hmm. and and I, that's I've just heard that story along the line somewhere and. It came up when you mentioned that, or shortly thereafter. So I'm wondering if that is from the Pali Canon, and if you can give me the reference to that, if it is, or where it's from. Okay, it's not in the Pali Canon. Mm -hmm. It's in something called the Ubaya Gausalya Sutra. It's a very early Mahayana Sutra. 
And um, there are two interesting things here. Um, there are instances, this is supposed to be a Jataka tale. It's not the Buddha Jataka himself. Tale. Yeah, it's that's, where, that's the context time. I heard it. Um, in the Pali Canon, you do have cases where the Buddha to be in the, in the Pali Jatakas breaks some of the precepts. In fact, if you go down the five precepts, there's only one precept he never breaks at all, and that's the precept against lying. There are the places where he's guilty of, you know, killing, stealing, illicit sex, drinking alcohol, and other things. Now, the traditional explanation of that was that he's, hey, he's just a bodhisattva, he's learning the ropes. You know? <laughs> there's just more that he still has to learn. In fact, the one of, there's one where he, he's a hermit, and he's invited into the king's um, palace to teach the king's harem. He falls in love with the queen and basically sort of arranges it so they might, you know, do whatever. And the queen says, wait a minute, you're an ascetic, you can't do this. What kind of ascetic are you? And he gets so chastised and so embarrassed that he goes out in the forest and never comes into the palace ever again. And so that was his wife-to-be. And in that one, she teaches him the lesson. So in the Jataka tales, the Buddha is not perfect, but the explanation is, okay, he's not a Buddha yet. He's learning this stuff all on his own. He's going to make mistakes. So, but that particular story, you say, was from uh, an early Mahayana text. Early Mahayana text, yeah. And they're trying to make the point. They make the different point. It's not not that he's, he's, he's imperfect or he's just learning the ropes. He's really, really wise and compassionate. So it was, it was, in fact, it was that particular story that created a whole line of stories about you know, wise ways of breaking the precepts or compassionate ways of breaking the precepts. But you don't follow, find this in the early canon. Thank you. Yeah. 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 Thank you. Why is it that um, the admonition against lying is so sacrosanct? There's one passage where the Buddha said, someone who feels no shame at telling a deliberate lie, there's no evil that that person will not do. They take that more serious than anything else. Because if you can lie to other people, you can misrepresent the truth to them. And that can do more, more damage than killing them. You can get them onto wrong views for who knows how long to come. And it's, it's um, of the four Barajika rules, these are the ones that you know, drive someone out of the monkhood if you, if you break any of these rules. And they're in kind of ascending level of ser- seriousness. The first one is having sex. Second one is stealing. Third one is killing. The fourth one is lying about your spiritual attainments. Because again, if you kill somebody, that's just it for this lifetime. If you lie about your spiritual attainments and then they see you do something really dumb or you know, unwise, they say, gee, that's an enlightened person. Gee, who needs that? Aeons can go by before that person can come back. The Buddha's first requisite, he's, the only requisite prerequisite he had for a student, he says, bring me someone who tells the truth, um, bring me someone who is no deceiver and I will teach that person the Dharma. You can do an awful lot of damage with a lie. Yeah. 
question is how to, if you find the breath stressful, how to let it go? Okay, it's not, remember the Buddha has you know, the Four Noble Truths, each truth has its own task or duty. Okay, Stre- stress is to be comprehended, the cause is to be let go. Okay, the cessation is something to be experienced or realized, and then the path is something to be developed. Okay, when you see that there's stress in the breath, you don't let go of the breath. You try to let go, you try to comprehend, okay, why is this stressful? Until you see exactly what's causing it. When you see what's causing it, then you let go of the cause. And he says, you know, ignorance about what's going on in the body, what's going on in the mind, that's going to be what's going to make the breath stressful. So that's what you let go of, is the ignorance. But how do you actually let it go? Do we turn our attention or consciously? Exactly, exactly. You turn your attention to it. That's the only way you can let go of emptiness is to replace it with knowledge and awareness. I don't get everything what the agent said, but uh, thank you very much. Question back there. You've you've been over this, but let me just ask. Uh, on page 16, number 19, let's forget whether or not it follows from the two preceding. Let's mm-hmm. just take it as a claim. Mm-hmm. Is it is it true or not? And please comment. There's just nothing to distinguish nirvana from samsara. Is that the one? Yeah. Okay, we've got several issues here. One is nirvana a place? Is samsara a place? In the Pali Canon, no. In later teachings, it turns, that's what it turns into. But they're two separate places. And then the Mahayana comes along and says, well, they're not two separate places at all. They're found in the same place. That's what they're trying to do is they bring the two, two together. In the, early, in the early Canon, Nirvana, Samsara is a process. It's something that you do. And the ending of that doing then is Nirvana. Radically different, but where are they found? They're found here. It's not that you have to go off. My teacher once told me, as a child, he was convinced that Nirvana lay in the Himalaya mountains. That had partly had to do with the Thai words for Nepan or Nirvana and Himapan, which was the Himalaya mountains. And it was a radical discovery. No, it's right here. But then when you get there, then there's no there there. (laughs) Only it's not Oakland, okay?
<laughs> no, really, it's, it's a serious issue that we define ourselves by our clinging. And in, in defining it, when there, wherever there's a clinging, there's a sense of location, that you're right here. When there's no clinging, there's no, there's no location anymore. But the deathless is something radically, radically different from what we're experiencing right now. Question over here. Uh, Just one thing about um, views. Mm -hmm. To have a view you have to have a point to view from. You have to have an existence. Mm-hmm. So are they related? I exist, therefore I have a view. Or, or I have a view, therefore I exist. Therefore I exist. Right. <laughs> 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 Just as far as all those things go. Um, okay, nirvana has no views. Yeah. Views form a part of the path. That's part of constructive, fabricated experience. And I think one of the things all Buddhist teachings would agree on is you've, you've got to get to the point where there are we're not holding on to any views. They differ as to exactly how you get to that point and what's going to happen as a result afterwards. But you've got to use views in order to get to that point. Uh, that I understand. But I, I was just kind of commenting on yeah. if you have a sense of self, then... You, of, exi- of existence, then you automatically have a sense of, you automatically have views. Mm-hmm. That's, that's all. Mm-hmm. That it? Okay, well, thank you for your attention. It was, it was a long haul, but we made it. <laughs> <laughs> For years, Gil has been getting me, been asking me to do something abstract like this, and I, I prefer to do more practical day-to-day and discussions. But every now and then, it's fun. Yeah. <laughs>